as you're opening to the book of James, the one idea that, that needs to be really firm in our thinking as we begin to look at this question, why doesn't God save everyone? And we're going to read it out of this book, is that God, God compels no one to sin. That, that we are responsible for our own sin. God is just and right, therefore, to judge. But He's not compelling anyone to sin. He compels some to come to faith, but He's not compelling anyone to sin. And so, it's going to get a little bit... Well, I'll try to make it not convoluted as we go through, but it's going to get very nuanced as we get through. So, as we're going through this morning's message, keep this in the front of your mind. In James 1 starting in verse 13 and going down to 18. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own free, or of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we take ourselves into sin and God with the good gifts coming down from above draws us by His will so that we, those whom are saved, are the first fruits of His creatures. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage which makes it so clear. We are responsible for our sin and You are responsible for our salvation. Nevertheless, there's still that burning question. If you are responsible for salvation, why don't you save everyone? Why don't you save the loved ones in our family? Why don't you save the loved ones in our, in our schools, in our workplaces? Why don't you save everyone in our city and in our country? Why do you allow humanity to continue to rebel? Holy Spirit, we invite You to help us to understand this today. Because in our own natural thinking, before we are conformed to the Word of Truth, this is impossible to understand. And more than that, it it grieves our hearts. But we know You are good and perfect and that only, only good things come down from above. So we we rely on Your goodness to unlock this mystery for us. I pray, Lord, that You would give me the words to help this congregation to wrestle with these ideas and to come to a place of peace, trusting that You will do all things right. In Your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So James 1, 13 to 18, we're not really going to look at that verse anymore except to, to point out some things. God does not encourage us to sin. He tempts no one. Therefore, He does not compel us to sin. He does not cause us to sin. Therefore, He's not responsible for our sin. And yet, the Bible is very clear that God hates sin. 
that it is the exact opposite of his nature and his character, and therefore he will not, he cannot exist with sin forever. He's patient with us for a time, but that will not last forever, and the day will come when he will judge sin. And those whom he has not drawn into salvation will be condemned. That's, that's the beginning of the gospel. And so we just have to remember at the outset, as I said, to introduce the reading of our scripture is that God does not compel or cause us to sin. He causes us actually to be saved. Just very quickly, and we don't have time because we have so much to say today, but I think it's important to just review in a very brief way last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, do we or do we not have a free will? And we concluded that every human being has an autonomous individual will. Therefore, we're responsible for our own decisions. We're not puppets or robots, but that that will is enslaved to our sinful nature. Therefore, someone who has not been saved by God can only choose between sin and more sin and various kinds of sin. And even when an unsaved person chooses to do something that is good, and it is, there are, there is that possibility for unsaved people to do the right thing. Underneath it though, it's not coming, that decision's not coming from faith. Therefore, it's not technically a good decision. It's a productive decision. It may be an edifying decision, but it's not good in the sense that if we define good as that which draws us to the greatest good, which is God, then then that decision cannot be categorized in, in that sense as a good decision. It's productive, it's healthy, it's edifying, it's all these other things that are positive, but it's not good in the sense that it draws us to God. So only saved people can do that. Unsaved people are enslaved. Once we are saved, though, our frees, our wills have been freed. The truth will set you free. And then we can choose between that which pleases God and that which displeases God. We can choose to submit our lives to righteousness or we can choose to continue to sin. So as Christians, we have free will. What will we do with our free will? Last week, we looked uh, more specifically at the doctrine of election. And, and we concluded with you know, with so many other scriptures, and let me just go from Romans 8, that, that God is entirely responsible for the salvation of those whom are saved. No one will choose God. Romans 3. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2. Romans 8. However, before the foundation of the world, God foreknew some. He said, I'm going to come into an eternal relationship with some. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He said, there's going to come a time when I will break into their life. And those whom he predestined, he called at a particular time and space in history, the Holy Spirit implants the imperishable seed into the elect, those whom God foreknew. Those people are called, and when they are called, they are justified. God declares them to be in that moment not guilty of all of their sin, past, present, and future. And those whom he has justified, he will glorify. He will raise the elect from the dead bodily. He will glorify us in our nature, in our spirit, and in our bodies that we will be like Christ. If God foreknew us, He will glorify us. That was last week. To summarize with one other phrase, it's the Spirit that brings about this salvation. The flesh, because our sinful selves, is of no help at all. So, our question today, if God decides who is saved, 
if God has the power to irresistibly draw people into a saving relationship with Him, why doesn't He save everyone? There are some very famous verses where some people twist these verses to say, well, God does. This is a heresy called universalism and it's gaining traction in the church in North America. You've, you've probably heard of it. This idea that everyone goes to heaven because God is love and God wants people to be saved and God is all-powerful and if God wants this and He has all the power to do it, then God will do it. That's universalism and that's actually a heresy. And, and the more that we're drawn into that heresy, the more doctrines like... Um, predestination and election become despised by us in the church, which is to our shame. So we've got to be very careful, right, when false teaching creeps into the church. Let me just give you a couple of verses that universalists will use uh, to try and make this point. Again, just listen. We're going to get into Romans 9. Then you can open the Bible with me. But I want to go over this as, as quickly as I can. First Timothy 2. Paul says, first of all then, this is Paul speaking to the church, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. All people. Verse 2, for kings and for all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Here it is, who desires all people, again, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Amen. The man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You just take those verses and... and we could very easily make a case for universalism, couldn't we? God desires that we pray for all people because God desires that all people are saved and He has set forth His Son, Jesus Christ, who bears the punishment for all people. It's a very short step then to say, well, then all people are saved. Another verse like this in Second Peter. Chapter 3. Context of, of these two verses that I'm going to read you is that final judgment is coming. There's going to be scoffers that say that final judgment is not coming. And they're going to say, well, it's been a long time since Jesus ascended into heaven. So clearly there's no final judgment. In response, Peter says, but don't look overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill the promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Those are great verses, aren't they? He's not slow, but He's patient because He doesn't want anyone to, to perish. He wants everyone to be saved. Therefore, he's, he's waiting, he's withholding his, his return in Christ so that everyone will be saved before he comes and judges. That's at least how universalists interpret this. These scriptures uh, seem so great and easy to understand. But the doctrine of election does not permit us to interpret these verses the way that I just have. 
the way that the universalists interpret them. Because remember, the doctrine of election, which we've already established, begins foundationally with the, with the idea that no one will choose God. No one will choose God. No one seeks God. No one loves God. Nobody wants to submit their lives to God. No one wants to give their sin to Christ. No one wants to be punished on the cross in the body of Christ. Everyone thinks, well, I think I've lived a good enough life and I will just do what I can to merit my own way or they reject God altogether. No one seeks after God. So it doesn't matter how long God waits. Unless He does something, unless God intervenes to save some, no one will be saved. Therefore, context is necessary for the right interpretation. You go back to uh, 1 Timothy 2, remember? Pray for all people. Because God desires all people to be saved. Right after the first all people, we get a definition of what those all people are. For kings and those in high position, pray even for them. Because God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Even the governors and the emperor. The people that are making your life miserable. The people that are persecuting you. Pray for them. Because God desires that all kinds of people, not just, uh, not just Jews or, or poor, marginalized Gentiles to be saved, but all kinds of people, rich people, poor people, Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians, intellectual people and working class people. Pray for all kinds of people. That changes that verse, doesn't it? We have one mediator for all kinds of people. There's not a Savior for the Jew and a Savior for the Gentile. There's one mediator between God and humankind. That's the man Jesus Christ. So pray for all people. Not every individual. God doesn't desire every individual to be saved, but all kinds of people. One Savior for every nation, every race, every language, every culture, every social group. What about... 2 Peter 3. God doesn't desire any to perish. It's good news. Context again though is that scoffers will come. Some people will say. And, and in the broader chapter, Peter is drawing a comparison between the final judgment and the days of Noah. Did everyone get in the ark? No. God desired that all people in the days of, of Noah would be saved. That included Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. And, and animals. He wanted to make sure that everyone was in the ark before He sent the rain and broke open the fountains of the deep. But we understand that when we say that about Noah's time, He's not saying every individual. He's saying everyone that was predestined unto that salvation. Therefore, in 2 Peter 3, it's he and the context even immediately is you. He is patient with you, my beloved. He's, he's, he, Peter's writing to the elect. So Jesus, what Peter is saying is Jesus is not going to return until the very last person that God foreknew before the foundation of the world has come to faith. Then the end. Then the judgment. And then the scoffers will be judged. These are not universalist passages. So why doesn't God save everyone? We haven't really gotten any further have we? But that was important because we don't want to, we don't want to allow any sort of 
fragile thinking to, to creep in before we get into what we're going to talk about because it is so difficult. We have to acknowledge at the very beginning what free will is, what predestination is, what election is, and then also what the heresy of universalism is. Now that we're all there, let's address the question. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. But because of him who calls, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So God decided to introduce the gospel into the world to a man named Abraham. All the promises of the gospel were given to him. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twins. Jacob and Esau. And God says, one of these men is going to receive the blessings of the gospel and the other is not. And I want you to know this, mother, Rebecca, before either one is born so that you don't love one more than the other. But it's so that God's purpose of election might continue so, so that these two men can help to illustrate that, that salvation is all about God's initiative. It's not that one had done good and the other had done bad. Case could be made that Jacob was a, uh, uh, what would you say, less eligible for God's favor than Esau. But Jacob I have loved. Jacob I have chosen. Jacob I have foreknown. I've predestined him. I've called him. Justified him. Glorified him. Esau I haven't. Sounds like God's being unfair, doesn't it? Neither son could choose. Paul picks up on this as well. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unjust to save Jacob, but not to save Esau? By no means. Absolutely not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let's just remember at the outset that neither Jacob nor Esau deserved salvation. So God's not being unjust. He's actually He's deciding to be to trump his own justice, in the case of Jacob, to be merciful and compassionate. But he's not compelled to do that for everyone. Or for anyone. Because both Jacob and Esau deserved God's justice. Esau received what he deserved. Jacob did not. So, so let's just start there. If, if this is a matter of justice, then God is just and right to condemn everyone. But God said to Moses, I have chosen to be merciful with some. I've chosen to be compassionate with some. Will you fault God for that? Will you say that it's not right for him to be compassionate to some and you will demand him to be just with everyone? Be careful if you demand that of God, for then he'll be just with you. And then where has that gotten you? That you need to answer for your own sin. Verse 16, so then it, that is salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now we might be able to get our heads around this idea that okay, God doesn't need to save anyone and yet he is completely sovereign and it's his prerogative to to show mercy and compassion to whomever he wants. But what about this second part? This idea that Pharaoh is hardened. Sounds then that God is not just drawing some unto salvation, but it sounds like, if we're just sort of reading along the surface, that God is pushing some people into condemnation. So He draws some into salvation, He pushes some into condemnation. Is that what the verses are saying? What does it mean when when Paul says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Let's try and go through this one step at a time. First of all, when when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and we'd have to look at a bunch of other examples to prove the point. And if you struggle with this, come and talk to me after. But I think we'll show it over the course of the day. God is not inducing hardness to Pharaoh's heart. Remember, the doctrine of total depravity says that we are all as, as wicked as we can be. That, that when, when Adam sinned, he corrupted human nature so extensively that we, we are exactly the opposite of God's goodness in our nature. Now, here's the problem with total depravity. Unless God intervenes immediately when Adam and Eve sin, immediately we have a murder-suicide on our hands. That's how depraved Adam and Eve were. Immediately what happens, if God doesn't intervene, back in Genesis 3, Eve takes the fruit, gives it to Adam, Adam eats the fruit, then they are so corrupted by their own sinfulness because they have departed from God that Adam kills Eve and then kills himself. That's total depravity. You have to remember that there's no nothing good in fallen humanity. If God doesn't intervene with some some safety checks, if He doesn't spot us, if He doesn't pour out some measure of grace into every human being, then we are all, each one of us, in our nature, not in our actions, but in our nature. If God were just, just to abandon us to be who we are in our nature before we're saved, we're all as bad and worse than Hitler. Why is it that, that tyrants like Hitler can, can convince so many people to go along with what they're doing? It's because everyone in their totally depraved state is as bad and worse than Hitler. And we don't like thinking about that because, because we remember back before we were saved, yeah, I wasn't a very good person, but I wasn't that bad. Do you know why? God's grace. God pours out saving grace on some, but He pours out what's called common grace on everyone. Otherwise, the doctrine of total depravity says we don't make it to the second generation.
And if you go back into Romans chapter 1, God pours out His wrath on people. How does He do it? He just steps back. That's what's happening here when, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What did God do? He did nothing except step back. He just stepped a little back. He pulled the common grace back a little bit. And allowed Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh would do. And if you go into Exodus, we're told that, uh, that Pharaoh is acting hard in his own heart. How do you reconcile that? Is it Pharaoh hardening his heart? Or is it God hardening his heart? Well, it's both. It's that God steps back and then Pharaoh of his own depraved nature does the things that Pharaoh does. So we can't blame God for the things that Pharaoh does. And God is not pushing Pharaoh into a place of condemnation. He's just stepping back. It's so important. The second thing that we have to, to understand, so the first thing is that God is not inducing a hardness to Pharaoh's heart. His heart is already as hard as it could be. Steps back. Pharaoh does what Pharaoh does. He's responsible for his own decisions, right? All of a sudden, we want to make Pharaoh into some sort of a puppet. This hardening? No, that's not the case. Pharaoh's responsibility for his stubbornness. He's responsible for his stubbornness, not God. Remember, this is why I read James 1. God does not tempt anyone. Only good things come down from God. It's helpful. Second thing that we have to understand is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not a hardening that led to his condemnation. It's not as though Pharaoh was right with God and then God said, well, I'd like to glorify myself here. Therefore, I'm going to harden you and I'm going to step back from you. That's not what happened. Pharaoh was already in complete opposition to God. So we're not going from a place of being right with God to a place of not being right with God. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not one that leads to his damnation. He's already damned. It's a bad word, but I think it's it's important that we use these hard, emotionally charged words because that's the case. He's already condemned. He was already unwilling to choose God. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not to prevent Pharaoh's salvation. So you might say, well, okay, maybe it wasn't going from, from salvation to damnation, but it prevents him from being saved. It doesn't. He already is not going to be saved unless the Holy Spirit intervenes and justifies him and calls him. So this hardening, this stepping back of God does not put in jeopardy a potential salvation. That's never in jeopardy with God. So you see, we're looking at this all the wrong way. God stepped back from Pharaoh, not in order to withhold salvation from him, but to glorify himself. That seems like a big leap, doesn't it? How is it that by not saving Pharaoh, not causing his condemnation, but not choosing not to save him, how is it that God is glorified? Well, what was the purpose of God stepping back from Pharaoh? What was the purpose of God saying, I'm just going to let Pharaoh do a little more of the driving for a while? What was the purpose? 
to free Israel, but only after ten plagues. I, I suppose what God could have done is He could have sent Moses to Pharaoh, and God, rather than stepping back from Pharaoh, could have poured out a, just a healthy dose of common grace on that day. Right? So Pharaoh's still not saved, but God could have softened his heart and said, you know what, Pharaoh, you're just, I mean, Moses, you're going to go, you're going to talk to your, to your, um, relative, Pharaoh, <laughs> might have been a brother even, and you're going to say, look, we go a long ways back. God came and spoke to me. I know it's going to totally ruin your economy, but I want you to give me the slaves so that we can go and worship God. And God could have softened his heart, not in a salvific way, but poured out enough common grace that Pharaoh says, that, that's reasonable, Moses. And by the way, I've missed you. But that's not what happened. Why? Because God wanted to show that he alone was God. And if you go into all those ten plagues, every plague is in a direct attack assault on a false Egyptian god. And so God says, while we're in this situation of slavery, I want to paint for you a much bigger um, bigger uh, scenario here. Not only am I going to deliver my people from slavery as a picture of redeeming some people from slavery to sin to freedom of will, but I'm also going to show you that I alone am God. I'm going to attack every one of your gods with a plague. Yeah, fine. All of your priests, all of your enchanters, all of your wise men, go go and do whatever it is you do to entreat your gods. But I'm going to show you that I alone am God. So God says, I'm going to use this unsaved man to glorify me. What's wrong with that? Remember James 1. God's not forcing Pharaoh to sin here. He's just allowing Pharaoh to be Pharaoh. And he's using him to glorify Himself. Therefore, God glorifies Himself in two ways. We just use the Exodus as an example. He glorifies Himself by those whom He saves. Did God receive glory when, when the slaves left Egypt with all the spoils of Egypt? Crossed through the Red Sea? Do you think they glorified Him? Yes. He's glorified by, by saving people. He's also glorified by working by, through the rebellion of sinners. Was he glorified in Egypt when the slaves were on the other side of the Red Sea and, and Egypt was in shambles and they, they could remember the ten plagues and every house was at a funeral because the firstborn was dead? God was glorified. Because every one of those Egyptian houses had to come to the place where they said, where were our gods? Why didn't they stop this? And they could only come to one conclusion, that the God of the slaves was more powerful than the gods of the Pharaoh. God was glorified. So the point here, and we, it's always about us, right? When we, whenever we start thinking about salvation and who's saved and who's not saved and, and, and the way God uses unsaved people and saved people, it's always about us and we twist it and we don't care about God's glory. All we care about is that God owes us something and, and not just us, but everybody. If He's going to be merciful and compassionate with us, then He should have been merciful and compassionate with Pharaoh and with all of the Egyptian sinners that were rebelling against Him by worshiping false gods. And, and we put God on trial and we say, God, you're not fair. And we forget that this is not about us. 
This is about God. This is about His glory. This is about God deciding to glorify Himself to the maximum amount. And He does that by saving some people and He does that by condemning some people. But the condemnation of those who are not saved is deserved. You know where the heresy of universalism goes? If you take it to its logical conclusion? Oh, we love the doctrine of universalism when it's about our kids or our parents or our cousins or our co-workers or our friends. But do you know where the doctrine of universalism takes us? If we say it is not right for God not to save everyone, this is where that ultimately leads. People like Paul Bernardo shouldn't be in jail. It's not fair. That's where the doctrine leads. That's what we're saying to God. We're saying, God, you're not right to condemn anyone. And if we apply the same principles to ourselves, then open the jails. And let everybody out. Let, let justice not um, run its course in this nation. If we demand that of God, let's demand it of ourselves. Who would want such a world? Who would want such a God? We have too low a view of sin when we say that God is not right to judge. Too low a view of sin. I want to summarize this another way. All humanity chooses sinful rebellion. God intervenes to save some to His glory. God uses the rebellion of others to His glory. Everyone gets used to glorify God, saved and unsaved. That's the miracle of it all. God doesn't waste a single life. He uses every life, even the life of of Pharaoh, even the life of Paul Bernardo, even the life of Hitler, to glorify Himself in some way. But that does not mean that He saves everyone. I just want to give you a sort of a modern parable. Let's just say that we agreed with the idea of, of capital punishment. Now, I'm not asking you to agree or disagree with that, but for the sake of the parable, just go into that place for a minute. That if you kill someone, then the government is right to execute you. Let's just go to that place for a minute. So there's a hundred convicted murderers waiting execution. And the, and the law says that that is just and right and good. And by the way, the Old Testament says that. So... We're not too far from the revealed Word of God. hundred convicted murderers are waiting their execution. All of them are actually guilty. I don't want anyone to say, well, what if somebody was actually innocent? No, that's not where we're going. All of them actually did it. In vile and gruesome ways. None of them deserve a pardon. If justice is going to be served, then the execution comes a hundred times. Now, if, let's put ourselves in, in, the, in the United States since the president has the power to pardon, let's say that the president offers a pardon to ten. So ten of them, are their execution is stayed. They don't have to be executed. 
Would we say that there's a miscarriage of justice in the case of the 90? Or would we recognize that the president showed mercy and compassionate to 10, though they did not deserve it? If there's a miscarriage of justice, it's not that 90 were executed, it's that 10 were forgiven. The miscarriage of justice is in the freedom that comes by grace and mercy and compassion. Suppose we could look at this another way though. We're not, we haven't yet fully resolved the problem, have we? We told, we spoke the last couple of weeks about how before God created anything or anyone, He foreknew everything in advance. Not that He created us as puppets or robots, but He had the ability to see how this would play out. So in choosing the plan, in choosing to go ahead with creation, where, where we would require Him to intervene in our lives in order to save us, in, in Him choosing not to do that with everyone, is He not in the very act of creating, condemning all of us, those who are not saved? Could we not blame God for that? Could we not say it'd be better that we didn't even exist so that those who are not saved would not be condemned? You see, it's dangerous where this is going too, right? We're beginning to wish away our own existence, by the way. But could we not at least do that in a very altruistic moment? Say, I would rather not have existed than for some people not to be saved. Well, we have to remember that God is God and we are not. It was His decision to make and not ours. Take a look with me back at the text in verse 19. See, Paul, as he's writing this, he knows that he's in explosive territory. He, He anticipates the objections. Now, you'll say to me then, based on what we've talked about already this morning, you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's sobering and so important. Who are we to put God on trial? He's the creator, we're the creature. And we're a rebellious creature at that. We're the criminal. It, it, it's, it makes as much sense to say to God that He shouldn't have created anyone if this is how it was going to turn out. It makes as much sense to do that as for, for a, a, a murderer to say to the judge, I want to put you on trial for a moment. You know, if we didn't have any of the, these laws or this state, then I wouldn't be on trial. I think that the problem is with the legal system not with my behavior. Who are you to speak that way to the judge? Who are, who are you, oh man, to speak that way to God? Will what is molded say to its maker, why have you made me this way? There's deep irony in that, right? Because God made us rebellious and then saved us. We're going to find fault with God for that? Because it injures our universalistic longings? Why have you made me like this? 
Why didn't you save my brother? Why didn't you save my mother? Why didn't you save my coworker? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Powerful questions. In the midst of all of this, it it gets away from us, all of us, at some point, right? At some point, we all find ourselves in that place, right, where we put God on trial. Every one of us. I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it. So, so these verses then are extremely important. Let's keep a right perspective. When we're doing our theology, let's keep the right perspective that God is God. He's the potter. We're not God. We're the clay. Do I not have the right, if I was into pottery, to create my best piece to have you all over for supper and another piece where I would never bring it out unless it was just me? I wouldn't even bring it out with Angie and Sarah. Do I not have the right to do that? Do I not even have the right to make all kinds of of pots and dishes and take half of them or 90% of them and smash them on the ground if I want to? Could anyone stop me from doing that? Could anyone say to me that I'm not being fair to the 10% that I didn't smash? I know these are emotionally charged things, but we have to think rationally about them. Our theology has to be rooted in the sound doctrines that, that all build toward this doctrine of election. And now we come to the most difficult verses in the Bible. It hasn't even got as hard as it's going to get. We're about to, to step into that place that is most uncomfortable. The, the place that emotionally it, it should grieve us. Jesus himself, by the way, just so we, we know that we're on, on the right side of things, as Jesus went past Jerusalem, he began to weep for it. And he cried for the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, so many times I wanted to gather you like a mother hen gathers its chicks, but you were not willing. I suppose we could add there, and I was not willing to pour out more grace. So Jesus, fully knowing that in 70 or in A.D. 70, that the temple was going to be destroyed, the city was going to be sacked, people were going to lose their lives, he cries. So it's okay for us to be grieved and to cry over this doctrine. What is not acceptable is for us to dismiss it. It's not acceptable. We can't just put ourselves above God and above His Word. We can cry we cannot condemn God. It's the most difficult verses in the Bible. I challenge you to find any that are more difficult. This is where our question is actually answered. Everything else has helped us to this point. And now 
God answers our question. Why doesn't He save everyone? Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction? Now, why would He do this? In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Why doesn't God save everyone? There's two primary reasons. And there's a lot of evidence that helps us to drive to these two final statements. They're not easy to accept. The first one is this. God does not save everyone because God desires to show His wrath and to make known His power. That's something that God wants to do. God wants to show that He is a God of justice. And and as a God of justice, one way that He can, or the best way, the only way, I should say, that He can demonstrate His justice is to judge. To say that what you've done is not right. What you've done is not good and it deserves punishment. God desires to do that. He wants to manifest His righteousness by judging sinners. And we don't often think about God in those terms. But I'll tell you, if you're an Old Testament believer, that's the primary way you thought about God. One of the problems with the church is that we have we have watered down the Gospel... We have created a God in our own image rather than in the image that He has presented Himself as in the Scriptures. And the Old Testament, look at how long the Old Testament is. One of the primary points, look at three quarters of the Bible and then some. One of the primary objectives of God in the Old Testament, in the Scripture and in the history that it records, is to show that what Adam Adam and Eve did deserved judgment. Brutal, violent, wrathful judgment. And without that, we have no gospel. So God, yes, God desires to show His wrath and to show His justice by judging sinners. Our problem is not that this is true. Our problem is that we have watered down the gospel. We have created a God that is not described in Scripture. This is the God of the Bible. He cannot be tamed. He cannot be domesticated. Too many pulpits are treating him like a pussycat rather than the lion that he is. 
doesn't get any easier. The second reason that God does not save everyone is that God desires to make known the riches of His glory to us. God does not save everyone for our sake. So before you say that God is not right to condemn some people to hell, you have to know that what the Bible says is that God is sending some people to hell for your sake. So that you will know forever and ever and ever in every age that is to come what you've been saved from. To know that you didn't deserve this. To know that, that what you have is wonderful in comparison to what you deserve. He's done it for you so that you can see the depth of the riches of the mercy and the compassion and the grace and the faithfulness that God has shown to you though you and I both don't deserve it. He's done it for us. For our good. And we want to do away with that? How long would it be before you forgot the depth of God's mercy and compassion and grace to you if all of a sudden that was extended to everyone? How long would it take before you realize, uh, before you forgot that what you had was something special to be cherished, to be held on to, to worship God for? It would be one nanosecond in heaven before we forgot what we have. So, Why doesn't God save everyone? God doesn't save everyone because He wants to bring Himself maximum glory. How does He do that? He condemns sinners to hell. And He saves sinners from hell. He does both. That brings Him maximum glory. Remember James 1. Everyone who is condemned is rightly condemned because God tempts no one. The only thing that God gives is good. Before we can wrap this up, I think it's really important to describe hell. And and I don't want anyone to misunderstand why we're going to do this. I am not at all trying to make this doctrine more palatable, easier to accept. Because I think that the way I'm about to describe hell might suggest to some that that's what I'm trying to do. But that's not at all what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to let God off the hook by any means. I don't think He needs to be let off the hook. There's no hook to be got off of. But... We have a, I, I think we have a big misunderstanding when it comes to heaven and hell. So before we get too angry with God for sending people to hell, we have to ask ourselves, what is hell? What is it that makes hell so terrible? Because that's why we're blaming God, isn't it? Deep down. We're blaming God because we can't 
conceive of a God who calls Himself love, who would actually thrust people into hell. And so we all have some notion of the terrible awfulness of hell. And yet, I think what we do is we import something into hell that's not actually there. And that flames our rage against God. And the enemy uses this to make the doctrine of, of, of free will and predestination and election unpalatable for Christians even, which is, it's just, is there any greater way to break God's heart than to put Him on trial? To tell Him that you would rather not have been created and saved? than for Him to be just. Anyway, we all know that hell is terrible. Something to be avoided at all costs. So what's what's happening in hell? Is God inflicting pain on people in hell? Is He turning up the the register so that it's hot, hot, hot? Is He setting people on fire? Is He torturing people? Is God deriving some sort of twisted pleasure from the pain and the torture and the torment of people in hell? Because isn't that somehow what we think of hell? God's pouring something out. He's doing something. Is that what hell is? Well, let me ask you, is that what you think of God? This is why we have trouble reconciling this, I think. is we're like, well, that doesn't sound like God. Well, what is hell then? I think the best definition of hell is given by Jesus when He hung in hell on the cross. Jesus quotes Psalm 22. This, in my mind, most fully, most perfectly defines hell. And it's punctuated by the Gospel writers. It's the only thing that is put in the mouth of Jesus in the language that Jesus spoke it. Which seems to indicate to me that it is of some significance. What does he say? In Aramaic, he says this. And Aramaic was what most of the the people would have been speaking. Jewish people would have been speaking. That in Greek. Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries out, Eli! Eli! Lama sabachthani! My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? That's hell. Hell is that place where God does nothing. It's where God removes the last traces of common grace and allows us to be ourselves. People want to live without God. People want to be their own gods. 
People want to make up their own truths. People want to live without recourse to the law and justice of God. Fine. Hell is that place where God says, okay, have it your way. Here's a place where I don't exist. You'll find no grace, common or salvific. You'll find no mercy. You'll find none of my compassion. I'll let you be who you are. I'm out of your life forever, just as you wanted it. My boundaries, my laws, my protection, my kindness, my grace, my provision, it's all gone. As you wish, I will forsake you forever. See, hell is that place where every depraved sinner wants to be until they get there. Then there's weeping because they realize just how totally depraved they are and everyone else. And there's no place where they can find security. There's no place where they can find joy and happiness and relationships and, and the flourishing of civilization and society and all of those things that we take for granted even in this fallen world that, which are a gift of God's common grace to us. That doesn't exist there. So there's weeping. And then there's gnashing of teeth. Finally, once God abandons them, the people in hell gnash their teeth at God and they blame God for not saving them. God says, I've just given you what you want. Incidentally, if you want to know if you're saved or not, one good litmus test, it's not entirely effective, but helpful. An unsaved person will say about this definition of hell, well, that doesn't sound so bad. God's not doing anything to me. I get to just be myself, do what I want to do. No, no restrictions, no boundaries. And the, the fallen, perverted mind then begins to fantasize about what it might be like. But it's not like that. A saved person will say, there is no greater terror than God leaving me to myself in a world of people left to themselves. Why doesn't God save everyone? This has been hard. There's two reasons. I mean, you could nuance this. God desires to show His wrath. What is, it? what is that? It's the stepping back of God. It, God desires to make known His power by condemning some. Secondly, God desires to make known the riches of His glory to us who are saved. We're going to pray for our loved ones in a moment, but just before I do, in contrast to what I've just said about hell, do you know what the gift is ultimately for those of us who are saved? Do you know what glorification means? 
Another word that we could use for glorification is deification. You may say, well, God's not right to want to glorify Himself to the maximum amount. Be careful if you say that. Because the best way that God can glorify Himself is to share His glory with us. Before you you say that it's wrong for God to want to glorify Himself, just remember that in that self-glorification, we are glorified and made to be like Christ. We are given a divine nature. We don't become God, but all of a sudden we share in the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit unlike any other creature. And we are given a nature that is like Christ's, though we do not become the triune God. We are caught up into the love of Father, Son, and Spirit, and we become a brother of the Son of God, or a sister of the Son of God. And we share in the glory. So the choice for humanity is to be left to ourselves in our total depravity, or to be glorified to share in the glory of God. And God glorifies him the most by saving some unto glory and condemning some to forsakenness. Let's pray. Let's pray by name for the people who have not yet chosen Christ in your life. I'm just going to pray silently. I'm going to lead us. Then we'll sing. To God be the glory. That was a great song. To God be the glory. He has done a wonderful thing. Heavenly Father, we come to You now. We confess, first of all, that we have put You on trial. We are the clay and You're the potter and we have elevated ourselves over You. And we've demanded You to drop Your justice to our shame. God, I pray for everyone here. I pray that Your Spirit would minister to them, that You would help them to be illuminated by Your Spirit, that He would teach them these things because they are glorious truths. And now, Lord, we pray for our loved ones by name. Save them, please. Lord, please give us an opportunity to speak Your Gospel to each one of the people that we have prayed for. Holy Spirit, take 
your imperishable seed and implant it in their hearts that they may join us in glory. In Christ's name, amen.